Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question and unpack the rest. This week, we are doing things a little differently. Our episode was actually recorded live on a Twitter space yesterday, and I was joined by Chain Reactions' Anita Ramaswamy, as well as two experts from AngelList and EquityZen. They all came on to help us think through a question this week. What the F is a 409A, and how do those types of not-so-niche valuation appraisals affect employees? Make sure to continue catching these conversations live on Twitter at EquityPod. But without further ado, let's get into this show co-hosted between me and Anita. Hello, hello. I am Natasha Mascarenas, as you can very clearly see via Twitter spaces. And today I am joined by my favorite coworker, don't tell Alex, Anita <laughs> Ramaswamy. Anita, hello. Wow. Thank you. High praise. Happy to be here. <laughs> so this is kind of fun because we've done an equity and chain reaction crossover. Um, I guess when chain reaction first launched, but it's been a few months and and you and me have kind of spun off to do this episode, but it feels like a treat because we talk every day, but not ever in public or in podcast form. Yeah. So window into our world. I guess. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, let's tell people what this space is going to be all about. And just a heads up, this will be cross posted to Equity Wednesday. So you can catch it on the feeds tomorrow when you want to re-listen. But but stay with us because we'll have some crowd interaction, I'm sure, at some point. Yeah. So as you know, everyone's paying attention to this and we're seeing valuations kind of down across the board in the public markets and in the private markets as well. It's a pretty tough time economically right now. And it's been hitting tech especially hard. I think some of the high profile ones were like Klarna, we saw Main Street, we saw Stripe, and all of these were pretty widely reported on. So Natasha and I were writing something about this with our colleague Marianne, and we were reading about the Stripe valuation cut in particular, which was reported by the Wall Street Journal as a 28% internal valuation cut. So what the journal reported was last valued by investors at $95 billion, the payments processor has seen the internal value of its shares slash by 28%. So that's what was going on. Sorry, I'm being told I got to mute my Twitter. So dealing with some uh, technical difficulties <laughs> for a second I'll pick here. Up, I'll pick up from you, though, because I think that we saw that big valuation cut and it kind of fit into this narrative we've been seeing all across startups over the past few months, even though it feels like years, which is that Stripe is losing value in some way. And so we wrote that story. But pretty soon we realized that there was more to it. And I think better than a correction was writing a entire follow up feature on what the hell is a 409A valuation and appraisal process. So we have two guests we'll bring in later today, but I thought we could start off by kind of answering the high level of that question and why it was this follow-up story we had to do to that first Stripe news that we all kind of nerded out about on tech Twitter. Right, exactly. I mean, it wasn't just your typical valuation cut, right? Like what we saw with Klarna, what we saw with Main Street was kind of different. And the difference was that Stripe took this valuation cut internally through a 409A process. So Natasha and I decided we're going to talk to a bunch of experts, which we have two of them on here. But what is a 409A? So first of all, it's a process that companies go through and pretty much, you know, all private companies, all startups will go through this where they internally, they hire a third-party auditor to assess the value of their shares. And they do this so that they can value the equity that they're giving to their employees. And so while it's not mandatory for companies to do this, they pretty much do it at least annually. And it's very much like standard practice for companies to hire this auditor and get their shares assessed. But what's interesting is that that's actually totally separate and totally different from the valuations that we normally read about. Like normally when you go online and you see there's been a funding round and it says, well, the company was valued at X billion dollars, that's a valuation that they're getting from investors, which is often 
really different from the valuation that a company has internally from their 409A. And the reason this is interesting is we normally don't hear about what the 409A valuations are. That's not something companies are publicly sharing. That's not something that is often reported on or revealed. So we have to assume that, you know, this leaked somehow and that's how the Wall Street Journal got wind of like Stripe and what happened there. Yeah, it basically checks all of our boxes as curious slash nosy reporters because it's about this process that isn't talked about too often. It includes a number and of course it includes one of the most valuable companies in startups right now. So I think that's kind of the why it's important, but it's probably a great time to bring in both of our experts because it feels a little bit like we're talking about their bread and butter while they're watching us. Um, and so maybe we can start off by introducing Samuk Siridhara. He leads founder products at Angelus, which is a lot of Angelus. Samuk, thank you so much for joining the TechCrunch equity slash chain reaction Twitter space. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Natasha. And then we also have Phil Hazlett, who, Anita, you interviewed for the story as well. Yeah. So Phil is a founder and chief strategy officer of Equity Zen, which is secondary marketplace for private companies to trade on. Hey, everyone. Excited to be here. Yeah. Thanks for joining. So I guess either of you start off. What did we miss about the definition so far of a 409A? Thanks, Smoke. You should go first. You, uh, you look at these a bit more than I do, probably, <laughs> but uh, I'll try to fill in the blanks after you. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one thing to think about is like why 409As exist and if they've existed forever. And you covered this a little bit in the piece, but before I believe 2007, option grants used to be tax-free. And thanks to Enron and some of the like option date backdating, among other things, companies end up having to do a 409A. And so it just became standard practice for companies before. But I think your coverage is right. It's something that companies do so that they can grant equity to their employees and they're obligated to do it because otherwise they have a lot of tax requirements on the other side. Right. So it's not required, but essentially companies do it all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it's one of those things. It's not, if you read the letter of the law, technically required, but you you get so much exposure by not doing it that you just need to do it anyway. Yeah. And what are some of the events and scenarios that a company would do this outside of just the annual sort of update? Yeah. So the reason there's an annual update is because the 409A has a certain like validity period that goes over that you can say like within this period, it's still up to date, but you will do it as soon as any material event occurs. And a material event could be a fundraising or it could be an acquisition offer, uh, secondary sales, or uh, something major happens to the company's like ability to make money. And so any of those basically expire your old 409A and would cause a CFO or, or a lawyer on your team to say, you should get a new one. Phil, does that pretty much match up with the cadence in which you've noticed or or think about? Yeah, yeah, that, that definitely jives. I, I'm familiar with 409As for two reasons. One is because we're a private company and, and we, we do them as well. And so I've learned a lot about the process that way. And the second is because we just work with a lot of private companies at Equity Zen. And so each of them pretty much has a 409A. I would say that the one interesting thing that's probably going to lead into this discussion is the requirement, if you are going to use kind of the 409A letter of the law to issue stock options is you got to do it at least once a year. But if you want, you can kind of come up with ways of doing them more frequently, right? Which is what I think is the genesis of what we're starting to see, you know, over the past few months. Right. And that's really interesting that you say, if you want, you can do it more frequently, because that's exactly what I want to talk about more and dig into here is that why is it actually a good thing for companies to do this right now when valuations across the board are falling? You know, why is it that this valuation cut that's internal could actually be good? Why would a company want to reassess their 409A? And yeah, just to add to that, Stripe, for example, getting a 409A, I think a lot of the reaction was like, this was somewhat proactive of them or something that they did when a lot of the fintech public comps are down. Another thing that 409A appraisal processes look at before giving that valuation. So yeah, just adding that context too. Why now? Yeah. So I can kick things off. The first thing to think about is like, 
what are you going to do with a 49A valuation, right? Apart from, you know, having some incredibly splashy headlines, right. the, the real kind of operative part of the 49A is that whatever price comes out of the 49A is the valuation that you can now use prospectively to issue stock options to employees. So that means that if your 49A valuation says that you're worth a billion dollars, you can now start issuing stock options at a billion dollar valuation to your employees, even if your last funding round said you were worth 5 billion or 8 billion, right? So that's probably like the right context to think about this. So if you're a private tech company and your most recent 49A valuation was from 2021 and it said that you were worth $30 billion, employees have been getting stock options or restricted stock units based off of a $30 billion valuation. If your public competitor in the subsequent six months trades down 50%, a lot of your employees will say, well, it's really nice that you gave me these stock options, which have a, a value of $30 billion, And when I exercise that stock option, it's going to cost me a price that probably doesn't reflect reality of our business now. So it's prudent for companies to take stock of where things are trading at now and say, you know, in reality, if we do this 49A again, we're probably going to be valued at $15 billion. So we may as well do that so that we can now issue subsequent stock options at a $15 billion valuation. So the employees that receive those stock options can now pay half as much as they had to in the past to exercise those stock options. So that's kind of that's kind of the driving force here. Do you think it's kind of a mix between a recruitment and retention tool or either or more so? I, I guess I'm trying to think because we got this leak this time, but as I think both of you have kind of asserted previously to us, we might be seeing more of this. Does that mean that companies will be kind of speeding up hiring or are they just trying to keep their current employees happy? I'll, I'll speak first. I mean, I think it's both. It's pretty standard for employees at tech companies to get an initial option grant when they start and then as a retention tool to get future stock option grants to kind of incentivize them to keep working, right? If you if your first option grant typically has, call it a four-year vesting period, which means that you don't really own it until you've actually been at the company for three or four, you know, typically four years, then once you're there for four years, your, your equity is kind of yours, right? And you can leave. A way to incentivize people is to continue to issue stock option grants, which I think is a norm. And so I think this is both tools, right? It's a, it's a driving force to attract new talent that says, well, I was looking at you know public company A versus private company B, and now I can get better price stock options. And also for the people that are there that are saying, oh my gosh, I'm like pretty underwater on that grant you gave me in June of 2021. So it sounds like the next grant will be better. Okay. I guess one question I had is, so when we saw the valuation cut from Stripe, obviously that was reported on by the Wall Street Journal externally. But when we were looking at you know previous examples like Instacart, I thought that was a really interesting one because Instacart essentially went out and they sort of announced that they were going to do this and they announced that their internal valuation was changing. And that seems pretty outside the norm. How do you think it's received one way or the other? Like, you know, when this sort of news comes out, is it perceived as a positive thing? And Smoke, feel free to jump yeah. in here. So I think the narrative that a company sends in all hands is that how this is beneficial to you, the employee, and how it's an internal auditing mechanism. Generally, I think internally, it doesn't change the the needle. I don't think employees leave because an auditor thought the business was worth 20% less. Okay. But one other note I'll add on the last question is some of these later stage companies have changed the way they grant equity. Instead of granting a bunch of equity all up front when you join, they commit to a certain dollar amount per year. And that dollar amount per year then turns into a number of units shares later. And so there is an additional incentive for the existing employees and new employees to have that valuation lower because when it comes to that next year equity grant, you'll end up getting more shares. And so it's not just cheaper, it's actually more shares that you end up with as an employee. And that's true with Stripe's new uh, equity structure as well. 
Got it. I mean, I think that's what confuses me, honestly, a little bit about some numbers we're hearing out of Carta, which is that a lot of companies are delaying updating their 409As, despite it making sense because of some of the reasons that you both have talked about today. And my first thought when I heard that is, is it costly? But it couldn't cost between 1000 if you're a smaller startup to 20K to get this done. So I imagine if you're a venture-backed startup, that may not be too much upfront capital at first. So what are some of the reasons we might be seeing people delay? Is it the worry of a negative signal or or that we're going to report on it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think worrying about the like external perception of it is certainly one part of it. Two is you have additional like overhead thing, right? If you view 409A as like a thing you just have to do and it's like an impediment to you running your business and maybe if the drop is like 20% or something that you could anticipate happening, you might not be incentivized to do that change because it's just way more overhead yeah. and the risk of like... The other thing about early stage companies is perception matters a lot. And if your customers hear that your valuation got cut and you're not Stripe, that could be risky, right? And so it might not be worth the relative cost benefit trade off there. Yeah, they're not that expensive in dollars, but they do take time, right? Like a third party valuation firm that helps you do 49A asks you for a whole host of information about the financials of the business, who your competitors are, any strategic alliances you formed, any initiatives. And so there's like a time cost. And like speaking, for example, at EquityZen, it takes us a few weeks to get it done. Okay. It doesn't mean we can't do anything else, but there is a time cost. And I think maybe one of the other reasons why companies are delaying it is because they're kind of just hoping that this won't really be an issue like two or three months from now. And they can kind of go back to business as usual. And then hopefully this like valuation kind of took a dip and we're back. Right. And that's probably a little bit of, I'm guessing some recency bias from what happened during the start of COVID in like March, April, May of 2020 is like, if a company decided to redo their 49A in April of 2020, because they were going to, you know, capture the market downturn, by the time they were done, they were actually back in the same place of not higher in valuation. So I think there's a little bit of that going on as well. Yeah. And I'm curious if you think this means that companies are slowing down in hiring in general, you know, if they're not really choosing to update their 409A valuations, does that mean that they're just not really even thinking about bringing on new employees? Or am I thinking about it the opposite way? I might have that flipped. I don't, think, I don't people... think it's probably really an indication of of a company's hiring or pausing of hiring. That's my take. If you're planning to lay off or not hire anybody for a long time, you're still going to have you know the situations that Sumo kind of walked through, which is that you're going to have some existing employees that are going to get new option grants or that have a dollar value. And like it's still super important to them that if 4 a goes down. So I don't know if it's actually kind of a, a leading indicator by the direction. Yeah. So do you think we're going to see more of these going forward? Like more companies, you know, revising their 409As and then seeing a valuation cut because of that? I just, I'll add first, I could totally, as we've talked to you guys, like I see why it makes a ton of sense for companies to do it, especially during a time where they're refocusing a bit of their strategy. I doubt that we're going to see too many leaks because I do think the general consensus or I guess general reaction to evaluation cut of any sort can feel really negative or I guess just kind of a bearish signal. Even with Stripe, even though kind of saw the whole arc of why there is a good argument here, the Pragmatic Engineer, a newsletter that's written by an amazing reporter who I will link in our show notes today, basically had talked to two Stripe engineers and said that it still doesn't feel good to see this. It still doesn't give us all the hope, even though there is that math argument for it. So I kind of think it's like a both situation. We'll see more, but probably not. Will not become something that we see as much as we see like external valuations be published. So Mike, would you agree with that? Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, one other factor I'll add about why earlier stage companies won't do this quite as much is because one of the big inputs for other companies is public market stock valuations. And the later right. stage you are, the more a public market stock comparables impact your 409A. And if you're an early stage company, 
there's a significant discount into that anyway. And so you're really not seeing that much of a change because private market valuations will update slower anyway. So your private market comparables will, so you're, you're just going to see less of a change in early stage companies. I think that's right. But I don't know, like, I think if you're an employee at Stripe and you see like Square stock fall 50% or whatever, <laughs> and you, you you can't not include that anyway. And so the fact that a 409 changes is just like net good for you. It's like, you'd have to have your head in the sand to, to think otherwise. Okay. Yeah. So the process is something I actually want to talk about. You mentioned that public comparables are a really big factor when it comes to determining a 409A valuation. And one thing that we heard that we were reporting the story was, it was really funny. A lot of people were saying it's very common for companies to sort of provide one set of financials, maybe to their investors, and then one set of financials that's different and lower to their 409A appraiser because- And a different- Right. A different set to journalists too. Like, <laughs> right, right. We get like the broadest set. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Growth is happening. <laughs> so it's, it's three different data sets. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it's actually like a big no, no. It's a huge no, no, actually to like send like completely different sets of, of financials because the, the worst thing, the reason why you use a 49 evaluation is so that you have basically an IRS approved method of issuing stock options. Right. But if it turns out that the IRS looks in and says, oh my gosh, three years later, they say, how did employees at Unicorn Corp get stock options at a $200 million valuation when the company's worth $5 billion? Let, let, let's go take a look at their 49A valuation. And the 49A valuation was, was based off of some numbers that were completely different from reality on the projections that the company has given to their board. There's actually the ability for the company's 49A to be deemed invalid. And then you create mm-hmm. like a complete can of worms. I don't know how common that is. I assume it's like pretty rare, but the whole intent of putting this foreign NA process together was to basically to prevent things like Enron and things like WorldCom, where you had some really shady practices of issuing stock options. So it's a dangerous thing, dangerous thing to do. But the reality is still the same. The outcome of 49As almost always will be that the valuation is lower than the most recent funding round. That gap tends to collapse to the points you said earlier stage you say, hey, we raised a round of funding at a $50 million valuation. We did our 49A and said we're worth $5 million. Well, it kind of makes sense, right? The company's super risky. There's really not a public comp yet. And then the shares are deemed very illiquid, so you discount it tremendously. But as you get larger and larger, you kind of say like, wow, Stripe looks a lot like Square. Stripe looks a lot like PayPal. Right. And if the company's going to go public in six months, the discount for illiquidity uh, gets smaller and smaller. Yeah. The other thing you, yeah, you, you certainly don't want to give different books, but what you might play with is like probability weighting. And that's how foreign NA auditors come to like, what is the chance this company will actually be successful? And you may give the reasons why your company may not be successful to the foreign A valuers. But, you know, the business that VCs are in is like, why is this business going to be successful? So you may give the same information to both parties, but the VCs are only going to look about why it's successful. And the 409A auditors are going to care a lot about why it's going to fail. And they'll just end up with two different narratives. And uh, I don't know where journalists will follow it given the same set of numbers, (laughs) but like it's, it's just a different approach of looking at that data. That's so interesting. I mean, I imagine if you're an early stage startup, some like you work with mostly like these the earliest startups yep. out there. I imagine like there is obviously such a big cohort of like we are the Stripe for X. And I wonder if the advice is like we distance ourselves. Obviously, we're picking on Stripe here, yep. but like insert any big public company that's seeing their valuation be questioned or, or cut in any way. Like, will we see more companies try and prove why they're not like that? That's more of a rhetorical yep. question, but maybe you're probably already seeing some people react viscerally. Yeah, I mean, early stages, it won't matter because there's such a high like percent of like discount on success that you can say like you can start a new company on AngelList stack today, go get a 409 evaluation saying we're Stripe for Stripe. And like, (laughs) we're just just building Stripe again. You'll still get a valuation most likely that 
values your company at next to nothing for start. And like, it, it'll still follow the same exact curve. So those later stage valuations won't have that much of an impact when you're just getting started. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I want to ask both of you is just how should employees be looking at this? Like if I'm, you know, someone who's looking to get a tech job and I'm evaluating a couple different companies, maybe I'm looking at a company that recently did have an internal valuation cut. Is that an opportunity for me? Um, is there anything I should know or educate myself about? Yeah. So, so I think two things are important. One is probably shouldn't use the 490 valuation or any news article about it as the reason for joining a business, right? I think you've got to have belief in the company apart from that valuation and the story and the product and a, and a good boss, all the, all the things you'd normally look at. And I think an icing on the cake would be if a company is proactively doing something on a 490 valuation cut, because I think it makes it better for you as an employee. The second thing I think goes maybe unnoticed or underappreciated is that companies are like, deliberately moving money out of their pocket into the pocket of employees by lowering 49A valuations, right? They're basically saying you can now buy stock from Stripe at a lower price than before, which means that we Stripe will receive less cash from you when you exercise your stock options or get issued stock. So when you try to argue, oh, is a lower 49A bad for, for employees? Like It is very unequivocally making it cheaper for that employee to actually own stock in the company, which means less money is going to go to the company when that employee like exercises their stock options. So I just wanted to like hammer that point home. But yeah, generally, I would say this would be like very low on a list of factors on why to join a company. Okay. I think a place that I get stuck sometimes, you know, it's a common argument, which is like employee education around equity and their offers. And I view it much easier for a company to example bring up a base pay than to do something so niche to the average person as do a 409A valuation cut. You know, why not just increase that base salary? Because that's a language that almost everyone can speak. And in a time when startups feel really risky, that feels like a way to de-risk in a more transparent way. I know I'm probably simplifying a little bit, but that was my first reaction when I was thinking about, you know, my friends who are all smart people who work in tech, a lot of them had not heard about this even, this this at all. Us four have a reason to, but I don't know how much the entry level right. or, or you know, middle manager does. Yeah. Equity is a way to hire people with leverage, basically. Yeah. Equity is a way to hire people with leverage because you can issue equity and it has an asymmetric potential return. Any type of cash compensation has a 1x return for people, but it's known, right? So it's just kind of the, the way I think about it is you can maximize the size of your team and the size of your outcome as a business by issuing equity because you're giving someone something that costs 1x and can now eventually be worth 10x. Whereas if you're issuing cash, there's a very finite amount and a very known upside on what that is. And so um, equity just makes it complicated because you're also issuing a currency that is right. actually somewhat interconnected with your investors because they also have equity and your founders because they also have equity. So you're just making things complicated, but you are giving people the opportunity to have an asymmetric return. So I think I think that's where it comes from. And then the second thing is, you know, I can pretty quickly through our company and through our board create new equity pretty fast. If I want to create cash, it might be a little bit harder for me, particularly if I'm a you know earlier stage business that maybe hasn't figured that out yet. Yeah. I mean, there's two things that were on my mind as you were saying all of that, Phil. And one of them was just that leverage. I think that's a good way to describe it is that equity is hiring employees with leverage, but it's also, you know, it goes both ways, right? It's an increased upside, but it's also increased risk. So, I mean, I guess you could look at it in two different ways based on what you think about the market environment. But the way that I've been sort of wrapping my head around this is it seems like companies that are getting a reappraisal and getting their valuations lowered in this environment are more so like seizing the moment or finding a silver lining or taking advantage of like, what's kind of a bad market condition in the first place. It doesn't seem as much that they're hoping for this or wishing for this because obviously no one wants like valuations to be down across the board, right? Or to take money out of their pocket. Yeah. Like you said. Yeah. Yes, I think that's right. 
One thing I'm seeing on the employee side is one thing that's common that founders are doing now, we've building tools for, for them in AngelStack is to give employees different packages. So the idea is you get a choice of high cash, low equity, medium cash, medium equity, or high equity, low cash. And usually employees take the high cash version, but like sure. the offering the, the range of options is a way to like be more flexible for employees. Another thing I'll add is the reason a lot of this complexity exists is because it's designed to be extremely tax favorable to employees. If you want it to be not favorable to employees, you could just issue RSUs. There's no risk to employees. They don't really pay anything for it. Or, I mean, no risk, maybe an oversimplification, but they don't have all the problems of options and it's just income tax. But we introduce all the complexity here because we want them to have good tax treatment. Right. So the tax part is really interesting to me because I was reading some data that that basically, you know, was saying that it's from Equity B that that it's really hard for employees to even be able to afford to exercise their stock options. And my understanding is that has something to do with the taxes, right? Yep. That's right. And what happens is if you get an option grant at the time of grant, it's worth nothing because it's granted to you at a strike price that is equal to the 409 evaluation. So from the IRS's lenses, it's like you got nothing. And mm-hmm. When you do exercise it, however, if there's a difference between the current valuation, the current 409A, and what you paid for it, that's treated as a gain. First of all, there's like a price to pay for that. You have to, if you have 50,000 shares, a dollar per share, you have to pay $50,000 to exercise it. And then there could be a tax gain later for you as well. And, and that would be like a capital gains tax sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, it's also, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here. It depends on the kind of uh, option sure. grant and like w- instrument here, but there, right, there's right. multiple steps where an employee could be facing either a huge bill just to exercise or potentially a taxable event for them as well. Okay. I mean, I think the example you gave before, which is this idea of in the future, maybe, or currently we're starting to see the early innings of employees having more optionality around what their income is built out of or, or looks like, to me is a really exciting, maybe like note to end on a little bit, which is like, what does it actually mean for people's interest in joining startups during this time? Are we going to see it grow, lessen? Anita, I'm super curious to hear what you think a little bit about, I guess, all the different corners we've talked about today. Like, how are you feeling about how clear it is right now to join? Yeah, it's tough because I feel like there's so many discrepancies in what different parties are saying. You know, on one hand, in certain sectors, you hear the, the outlook really negative, And then other people are like, well, we're building for the long term. Everything's going to be OK. And you see some people taking valuation cuts and you don't really know what to make of it. I cover crypto really often. And that's what my podcast is about. And like crypto is a weird space where I'm seeing this play out where I think there's a lot of optimism, even though valuations are down across the board. But I do think that companies, the, the startups that are going to win and actually be able to attract people and retain them are the ones who are going to take advantage of things like this and, and sort of seize the moment. You know, I totally agree with what you said earlier, Natasha, that increasing base pay and cash compensation is really important. And that's a pretty direct way to get at that upside. But at the same time, if you can take advantage of public market comps trading down, and you can go ahead and reassess your 409 evaluation and give your employees at least a chance to maybe be able to afford to exercise those options. I think that, you know, that's going to be a good thing long term. And those are the companies that are going to win are the ones that are fighting the battle on many different fronts and not just one. Because when we're seeing such huge layoffs across the board, the companies that stand out are the ones that are not only not laying off people, not only retaining all their staff, but also sort of winning this longer term game of recruitment. Yeah. Yeah. I really like what Phil said earlier around people shouldn't be joining based off of 
of a story or leak or, or just valuation in general. And I think that's, you know, obviously always true if you're part of that mindset in tech. I think some people would definitely disagree with us here. Yeah. But these days, especially that bubble has burst a little bit of like, this is the place I'm going to join and I'm going to get rich and everything looks like a rocket ship when everything stops looking like a rocket ship. It's just if I was a, a tech employee, I would I would feel a little bit better about the transparency right now. Phil, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say the analogy I think about is you don't really lead, read your lease agreement when you sign the lease. You read your lease agreement when the pipe explodes, right? They're like 50 and pages long. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> right. You, you read it when something goes bad. And so for the last 10 years, people haven't really had to read too much about their option agreements and what they're getting and what they're worth because things have mostly gone pretty well. But now we're kind of in a market correction where a lot of things matter. What type of tax consequences you have matter. How many options you got matter. How diluted the company is. What the foreign any valuation even is. And so I think what you'll just see is kind of an increase in employee awareness. And you'll probably see what's sprouting up is kind of a grassroots campaign of more and more kind of bloggers and, and journalists kind of covering the, the nuances here, because we're going to hear some core cases, no doubt. All right. And over the next few months about people that thought they got A and they got B or, or they have some huge tax bill. And so I think it's just going to increase and promote some more transparency and, and some, probably more, some more questions from employees, which I think is really good. I want to throw both of you on the spot a little bit and ask what I guess each of your companies are doing right now, either building in response to this movement or in response to like just this broader conversation happening around employees needing a more transparent look into their income. Is there anything happening in the equities end world? Sure. I mean, something that has been going on for a while, but it's probably just picked up in nature is that, you know, we we talk with private companies a lot directly and we kind of help educate them on what we see in secondary markets. So one of the things we focus on is basically selling in the secondary markets. Uh, that's kind of our bread and butter. And then one of the things we spend more and more time on is educating the companies themselves on how liquidity works and how what it means for employees that have stock options versus RSUs, what the tax consequences are. So we're almost kind of like educating at the employer level. And then in addition to that, we're also spending a lot of time on the content side trying to educate employees, right? It starts off with talking directly with somebody at Equizen, but we kind of realize that we get the same questions over and over and over again. Yeah. So we're just trying to kind of almost better arm those call it rank and file employees to help with these questions. If you're a founder or something, you have a tax advisor, you have a you have an accountant, you have your your board, and they help you position yourself for these things appropriately. But if you have somebody that's got a hundred thousand dollars worth of stock, they don't have that resource, right? So trying to kind of level the playing field there is something we're spending some time on. Cool. Yeah, does that sort of square up with what you're seeing, Smoke? Like people paying more attention to some of these factors in the downturn. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, what, what you're doing at AngelList, I think, was uh, yeah, Natasha's Come direct question. with us. Tell us. Totally. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple things we're doing, but uh, Phil's point there is that fixing this at the company level is actually the most leveraged way you can do this. You can write a gajillion articles about like why and like education articles, but structural fixes are the most interesting to us. And so mm-hmm. on Angel Stack, when companies get incorporated, we set them up with a default equity plan that allows for allowing longer exercise periods for employees for, by example, for default, uh, which gives employees a little more flexibility. And then within our product, we expose the ability to give offer letters that are visual and explain equity as well. And you know, helping companies think about how to offer these like different packages of liquidity. And so we were exploring a bunch of structural fixes there, but a lot of it is tied into our cap table management software and how it presents data to employees as well and trying to give them the calculators and tools to make the informed decisions on their own side. Yeah, totally agree that uh, the structural changes are important. And it's a good time to get into cap table management. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that taking that approach and trying to fix things at that structural company level makes a lot of sense. But, you know, we're doing what we can in terms of the employee education piece. Yeah. Not every single person has the ability to make those sorts of decisions. So we really appreciate the two of you coming on and talking to us about this. Yeah. Thanks so yes. much. Yeah. 
Thanks, guys. Thank you. Anita, lovely to be on a Twitter space with you as always. Everyone else, you'll hear us on Equity tomorrow again. And Anita, Chain Reaction, tell people where they can find you. Yeah, can find us on your favorite podcast platform. That's Chain Reaction or on Twitter at Chain underscore Reaction. Yeah. If you want to learn more about crypto and hear more of my voice, please uh, come hang out. And we'll link all the pieces we talked about today in our show notes. But yeah, I appreciate you all. I mean, I feel like this started off as just like, um, I was telling Samuk when I talked to him, I didn't know that there was a universe of people who could like talk about 409A valuations and and care about it. And he was like, there's a lot of us out here. <laughs> and clearly there We're is. We're a very excited bunch, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope I mean, you all feel seen. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, everyone else, take care. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Yeah, have fun. Bye. Bye.